walls of St. John's Cathedral, a carriage ride in the cold, a warm summer night at the starlight with someone to hold, cheering our teams on to victory as only a Hoosier can do. Welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Indianapolis is currently celebrating its 200th anniversary, and this song by Sandy Patty is called Indianapolis Indeed. This is WaveScan edition NWS number 600, researched and written in, Indian, in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Miami. I'm Jeff White. This is for release on Sunday, August 23rd, 2020. On WaveScan today, the city of Indianapolis celebrates its 200th anniversary. And on the radio scene, Shortwave, WHRI, may be coming to an end. Also, our ancient DX report for 1922 and our Australian DX report as well. Currently, the city of Indianapolis in the American state of Indiana is celebrating the 200th anniversary of its founding, though obviously these celebrations are now quite subdued due to the ravages of the coronavirus. However, Indianapolis, as a planned city, was not the first capital in this state. More on all of this now from Ray Robinson. Thanks, Jeff. Under the original designation as the Indiana Territory, the town of Vincennes in the southwest, named by French fur traders, was established in 1800 as the first territorial capital city for this area. Thirteen years later, in 1813, the functions of the capital city were transferred to the newly founded town of Corridon on the Ohio River in the south. And then three years later again in 1816, all of what remained of the Indiana Territory was formalized as the state of Indiana. At that stage, a new location for the state capital was considered advisable, with somewhere in the center of the state being considered to be the most suitable location. Historians tell us that the first European settlers in what is now Indianapolis were members of the Pogue and McCormick families, who chose land near the White River somewhere around the year 1820. The new city there was designed by Alexander Raston, and he based his square grid pattern upon the already similar design for Washington, D.C. Several names were considered for the new planned city in the centre of the state of Indiana, including Concord, Suwaro, and Tecumseh, but it was Jeremiah Sullivan's suggested name Indianapolis that was finally chosen. At the height of its popularity, the Indy 500 motor race was considered to be the world's largest single sporting event, with one million people flooding into Indianapolis for the occasion. However, due to the ravages of the China virus, the date for the Indy 500 this year, 2020, was postponed from the usual last Sunday in May right up to Sunday, August the 23rd, today. On the radio scene, we could ask the question, 
has there ever been a shortwave broadcasting station on the air in Indianapolis? And the answer is, yes, there was, listed right here for Indianapolis itself. This is the story. A third of a century ago, Dr. Lester Sumrall procured 27 acres of empty farmland a couple of miles east of his 13-year-old television station, WHMB, which had been installed near Noblesville on the northern side of Indianapolis in 1972. Dr. Sumrall, a church pastor living in South Bend, quite near to the Indiana northern border with Michigan, ventured into radio station ownership back in 1968 when he purchased the ailing FM station WURD and turned it into the highly successful WHME with 3 kilowatts on 103.1 megahertz. In 1985, a 100 kilowatt Harris shortwave transmitter model SW100A was installed in a new building on the shortwave property near Noblesville the first of what was intended to be a trio of shortwave transmitters at this location. In addition, two TCI sloping net-style log periodic antennas, model 527, were installed for coverage across the Atlantic and into Latin America. Test transmissions began in December 1985, and the brand new shortwave station WHRI on the farmland property north of Indianapolis was officially opened in a special program beginning at 7pm local time on Christmas Eve, December 24th. The first entry for WHRI in the World Radio TV Handbook was in the 1986 edition, which actually listed the location for this new shortwave station as Indianapolis. The registered call sign, WHRI, originally meant World Harvest Radio, Indianapolis. Two years later, another Harris-made 100-kilowatt shortwave transmitter was installed at the Noblesville station. This time, a slightly updated model identified as the SW100B. Test broadcasts from this unit began in August 1987. In some rural terminology, this second transmitter was identified as Angel 2, and the previous transmitter as Angel 1. However, this second transmitter was licensed by the FCC with the callsign WHRZ, though on air both transmitters were identified simply as World Harvest Radio, WHRI. During the mid-1990s, station WHRI carried program relays on behalf of two different radio organisations, was Radio Croatia in Europe and the budding WRMI in Miami, Florida. Come the year 2003, and World Harvest Radio demonstrated an interest in acquiring two other shortwave stations here in the United States. These two stations were on the air with the super high power of 500 kilowatts each, and they were originally established by the Christian Science Organization as WCSN in Greenbush, Maine, and WSHB at Cypress Creek in South Carolina. World Harvest Radio in South Bend, Indiana acquired both of these stations. WCSN Greenbush became WHRA, and WSHB in Cypress Creek, just outside Furman, South Carolina, became ultimately WHRI, the new WHRI. The original WHRI in Indianapolis was no longer needed, and so it was closed, and it just remained silent for some time. A new housing estate was closing in on the area near the original transmitter site at Noblesville, so the station would have had to move away someday anyway. 
The station was finally dismantled and the two 100 kilowatt transmitters, WHRI-1 and WHRI-2, were conveyed elsewhere. The original Harris SW100A, Angel 1, went to WHRA in Greenbush, Maine, and the second Harris transmitter, the SW100B, Angel 2, went to the new WHRI at Furman in South Carolina. The actual location for the WHRI transmitter building at Noblesville is now a small artificial lake in the centre of a new housing estate. The WHRI radio location is gone, but the call sign has lived on until now at Furman in South Carolina. However, it was just announced this month that shortwave station WHRI in Furman, South Carolina has now been purchased by Alan Wiener, owner of another shortwave station WBCQ in Monticello, Maine. It's as yet unclear whether the call letters WHRI will continue to live on under his ownership. Thank you very much, Ray, for this breaking news about the sale of WHRI. It's expected that the station will be used to transmit programming from the World's Last Chance organization, the same organization that placed a 500-kilowatt transmitter and a multi-million dollar rotatable antenna at Alan Wiener's WBCQ shortwave in Maine. Well, Ray, you know uh, WHRI used to do a lot of coverage of the Indy 500, right? I believe so. WHRI is well known for their support. They, they've sponsored a car there, I think, for many years. And uh, originally, being an uh, Indiana-based station, I suppose it makes sense. Okay, well, I'm, I'm from Indiana. Oh, right. And uh, uh, also uh, from Indiana is uh, Doug Garlinger, who is with us right now. And he was the, uh, the chief engineer at WHRI back in those days, right, Doug? Yeah, we put WHRI on the air Christmas Day of 1985. And because we were only about 25 miles or less from the speedway, uh, we began airing the race probably 86 or 87. And so the, for the first time, you could hear the Indianapolis 500 all across the world from WHRI. And the announcer, Paul Page, mm-hmm. would often give us credit uh, that we were being heard around the world. Now, later on, and I can't tell you when, then uh, AFRTS also picked it up, and you could also hear it on AFRTS. But we were the first to do it. And uh, this was sort of a, an arrangement, uh, you didn't have to pay for it, and they didn't pay you. Or, or, that is correct. Okay. It was just, it, it was because we were from Indiana, and we wanted to showcase this very important Indianapolis 500 event, and they understood that, and they understood we were not for profit. Um, yeah, they worked an arrangement out for us that they probably hadn't worked for anyone else at the time, worked with the Tony George family and, and the people to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, did you hear it back then, uh, Ray? No, I didn't, but I'm very interested in this. How did you actually do the broadcast? Did you have outside broadcast facilities at the track? Uh, no, uh, there is a uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, has a special um, radio station or group that does it. Uh, back in the day, it was WIVC, but it's been other groups since then. And we just picked up their broadcast, uh, but we just followed the format pretty much of the race if you had a pit stop or whatever if you had a yellow caution we kind of knew how to follow it and of course the out cue was always the same stay tuned for the greatest spectacle in racing gentlemen 
Start your engine. It's the greatest spectacle in racing. It's the 104th running of the long-awaited Indianapolis 500. Pagano going to pop to the outside. Simon Pagano has taken the lead from Alexander Rossi. Listen, Sunday, August 23rd, on this IMS Radio Network station. Now, did you get much response uh, from around the world uh, for this? Yeah, we had tremendous response. I mean, in those days, Indiana was known for two things. No matter where you traveled, and I've traveled a lot of places in the country and in the world, and everything, the two things that everybody knew about Indiana in those days was the Indianapolis 500 and Bobby Knight. (laughs) (laughs) The the basketball coach, yes. Yes. Uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indiana University, yes. Uh And and, and uh, over in Scotland, they know of Indy 500, right? Oh, uh, absolutely. In the UK, it's, it's followed a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you do any special QSL cards for the Indy 500? No, we didn't do any special cards for, for the 500. But uh, we've done a few special cards over the years for the anniversaries, but not for a special event. Right. Mm. All right. Take care. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> You're listening to WaveScan from Adventist World Radio. Now our ancient DX report for 1922, a worldwide boom. Many radio historians describe the year 1922 as a year of rapid radio expansion throughout the whole world, a worldwide boom. Among the many collective events that assisted in fostering the development of radio as a mass medium of international communication were, for example, the introduction of new radio magazines in different countries in national languages, radio columns in daily and weekly newspapers and periodicals, special and sometimes quite novel radio events that caught public attention, information as to how people could make their own receivers in their own homes, the quick transfer of important international news from anywhere to everywhere, technical training schools that fostered radio experimentation, and the growth of amateur radio as a hobby that could be enjoyed by many. Here again is Ray with more on 1922. Yes, Jeff, as a result of this tidal wave of interest in radio during the decade of the 1920s, the sale of radio sets and parts in the United States alone was worth 60 million US dollars, and electronics manufacturers were swamped with orders that were difficult time-wise to fulfil. At the beginning of the year, there were just 50 or so medium-wave stations on the air in the United States, and by the end of that same year, a total of 569 medium-wave stations were on the air. It was the proliferation of all of these stations that ultimately set the boundaries for the medium-wave broadcasting band, which these days extends from approximately 530 to 1700 kHz. At 7.15pm on March 23, 1922, the famous medium-wave station WLW was inaugurated in the Crossley American Automobile Showrooms at 1601 Blue Rock Street, Cincinnati, with just 50 watts on what became the congested frequency of 833 kHz. On June the 8th, radio station WEAR was inaugurated in a small room on the 18th floor of the Munsey Building at 7 Calvert Street in Baltimore, Maryland, with 10 watts on 1300 kHz. Station WEAR was Baltimore's first radio broadcasting station, and four days after it was launched, President Warren G. Harding made a historic speech, and it is claimed that he was the first President of the United States to speak to an audience on radio. 
It was on the occasion of the dedication of the Francis Scott Key Memorial at Fort McHenry in Baltimore. Francis Scott Key had written a poem in 1814 that later became the lyrics of the American National Anthem. Friday, July 21, 1922 was another important day, at least for radio station WIAE in Vinton, Iowa. This station was unique in that it was the first medium wave station in the United States that was owned and operated by a woman, Marie Zimmerman, and she took part in the technical construction of the broadcast equipment. Over in England, Tuesday, February 14, 1922 was an important date, for that was when England's first radio broadcasting station was inaugurated. In Rittle, about 28 miles northeast of London, the Marconi station 2MT, or Emma Tock as it was pronounced, with 250 watts on 428 kHz, was installed in a small ex-army hut not far from the Marconi factory in Chelmsford. The four-wire antenna system was supported on two masts 110 feet tall. Three months later, on May 11, 1922, the more famous 2LO was inaugurated on the seventh floor of Marconi House at 334 The Strand, London, with 100 watts on 857 kHz. During the third International Wireless Convention in London in 1913, numbers had been issued to identify call signs for local coverage radio stations in European countries, and the United Kingdom had been granted the numbers 2, 5 and 6. Hence, for example, 2MT in Rittle, 2LO in London, 5WA in Cardiff and 6LV in Liverpool. A total of around two dozen radio broadcasting stations were established in the United Kingdom back during that era, but no pattern has ever been discovered as to the implementation of these numbers, not in regard to location, nor in regard to dates, nor in regard to ownership, nor in regard to type of station, nor in regard to power, nor in regard to frequency, no, not in regard to any observable pattern. The first test transmissions from Radio Radiola in Paris were noted on June 26, 1922. This station was established to foster the sale of Radiola radio receivers. Each time when a bulletin of news was read, the information was read twice, initially at regular speed, and then followed by a reading of the same information at slow speed, so that listeners could write down details of what they heard. In Honolulu, Hawaii, the first two radio broadcasting stations there were inaugurated on the same day, Thursday, May 11, 1922. Station KGU with 500 watts on 833 kHz is still on the air to this day, though now with 10 kilowatts on 760 kHz. The other station, KDYX, was owned by the Star Bulletin newspaper and was in operation for less than a year, though in some ways it gave way to the more famous KGMB. The second radio station in New Zealand was opened in February at Courtney Place, Wellington, and it was on the air for just one and a half hours on Monday and Friday evenings. The Dutch authorities opened a massive 1200 kilowatt long wave transmitter on the Malabar coast in Indonesia, and they encountered arcing problems across antenna insulators in the antenna system. On the shortwave scene during the year 1922, Dr. Frank Conrad at KDKA, together with several notable amateur operators, conducted propagation experiments on frequencies above the standard medium wave bands. 
The notable David Sarnoff at RCA wrote a special report stating that the day was coming when shortwave transmitters with powers of 100 and 200 kilowatts would provide worldwide coverage. The first listing in the radio service bulletins for a shortwave station well beyond the medium wave band at 2000 kHz is dated February 1st, 1922. The station that received this experimental land station license was W8XAH at the Ohio Mechanics Institute at the corner of Canal and Walnut Streets in Cincinnati, Ohio. Experimentation with shortwave coverage was just now beginning to receive an impetus that grew rapidly over the coming years. Thank you, Ray. Ray Robinson there at KVOH in Los Angeles. Let's go to Australia now. Here's Bob Padula in Melbourne. Information from the Ionospheric Prediction Service here in Australia, that's in Sydney, New South Wales, advises that the level of solar activity continues to remain very low. The 10.7 centimetre solar radio flux has dropped to 73.9 and the daily equivalent smooth sunspot number has fallen to single digits 9. There are two sunspots on the visible face or the earthward facing side of the sun but these are part of the uh, current cycle number 24. There are no sunspots visible yet for the forthcoming new cycle, cycle 25, and that's not expected until sometime in 2021. So we're going to continue to have rather unreliable long-distance propagation on darkness or semi-darkness paths on frequencies above about 10 MHz. But on the other hand, frequencies above about 10 MHz on daylight paths will become what will be somewhat more satisfactory. Begin some information now from monitoring observations made here in Melbourne recently as we move closer to our spring. It's now several weeks after the end of winter and we're now moving into early spring. And that means propagation will change and there'll be some rather unusual propagation effects noted if previous years are an example. First of all, in the late afternoon, 0700 to 0730, 25 metre bands, quite active. These are some of the signals we noted recently. On 11640, China Radio International from the Jinhua transmitting station with programming in Cantonese. 11700, Radio France International from the Usedom station in France with broadcasts in French. 11710, another frequency for China Radio International, this time from the Nanning transmitting station with programming in Chinese. 11760, very strong signals from China, China National Radio Network 1. And 11825, NHK Radio Japan Tokyo, broadcasting from the Yamata site with its programs in Japanese. And 11865, another station broadcasting in Japanese, this time the Voice of Korea from um, Pyongyang. And 11875, China Radio International, another frequency from Nanning, this time in Chinese. And then the 22 metre band, 13660, is another frequency for China Radio International from Xi'an 
in English. Now in our morning period, just prior to sunrise, 2000 to 2030, good signals in the 49 metre band, and this is a summary of notable frequency occupancy we heard recently. 5860 Radio Fardar broadcasting from Q8. 5970 The Voice of America broadcasting from Botswana in trench to Africa. 6030 Radio Oromia broadcasting from Ethiopia with programming in Afar. And 6090 Arabic broadcasts from the Korean Broadcasting System with the relay from Wolferton in England. Thank you, Bob. Before we go today, just a couple of reception reports we want to acknowledge from uh, some of our WaveScan listeners, including Jorge Zuniga. He is in, let's see, Santiago, Chile. And he says, uh, dear friends from Adventist World Radio, he heard WaveScan on 5010 kilohertz from Okeechobee on his Philco IC18R receiver, and he was using the built-in WIP antenna. And finally, uh, two reports from two Steves, starting with uh, Steve Thompson, Stephen Thompson, in Kingston-upon-Hull, United Kingdom. He says, I was listening to your show WaveScan on Sunday morning at 0100 UTC on 7780 kHz from Okeechobee, Sinpo 53454. I'm based in northeastern part of the United Kingdom. My receiver is a Texan PL880 attached to a 100-foot long-wire antenna. The other Steve is Stephen Jarvis in Bellflower, California, who heard us at 0120 UTC on 9955 kHz, also from Okeechobee, but on a beam going south. Heard Wavescan DX program 597, with a very good SINPO 45444. They're on the west coast of North America. So thank you to the two Steves, Stephen Jarvis in California and Stephen Thompson in Kingston-upon-Hole in the UK. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, Argentine anniversary, their first radio broadcast. Also, our Indian DX report coming up as well. Several QSL cards are available for this program. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for WaveScan to the AWR address in Bangkok. I'll give you in a moment. And also to the station your radio is tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa, or to IRRS Italy, or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air, here in WaveScan, such as today's report from Australia, they will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. We appreciate your reception reports, all of which are QSL'd in due course. However, we do have a request. 
When you're sending a reception report to Adventist World Radio by email, please send it to only one email address, and that is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSLs is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. That's Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. And the email address for other correspondence to Wavescan, other than reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Miami. Till next week, good listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.